I think often when we're in need of assistance in life, we may think through, what is it I need help with? And then in light of that, which of my friends or family should I ask for help? So let's say you need help moving. You're moving again from the third floor apartment, down the narrow stairs, just a few blocks over, up some narrow stairs to the third floor again. And you need some help. So so you probably sort of think through which of my friends are the strongest or are suckers, depending on how you think about that. Like, like who can I get to come and help me carry stuff up and down? I've noticed a few years ago when I was a younger pastor, I got a lot more invitations to help in those moves. And nobody seems to call anymore. I'm not sure exactly how I should take that. But let's say that you're going through a season of kind of ongoing illness some real physical suffering. And so what you need is compassion and mercy. So in that case, you may not think through who who are my strongest physical friends, but who has mercy and compassion now? It might be the same friend or maybe some very different friends. Or it could be that you're facing a significant decision or challenge in life. And you feel like you lack wisdom. You, you are seeking out wisdom from others. So again, you think through friends. And in this case, you think through, which of my friends have the most wisdom? Who has wisdom that could help me? And I think sometimes when we have needs and assistance, we're also thinking through, how might Jesus help us? And we may have the very similar questions. Is Jesus strong? Is he strong enough to help me? Is he compassionate? He may be strong enough to help, but does he care? And in particular, does he care about you? And is he wise? In this complicated world, this complicated modern world that we live in today, is Jesus wise enough to help us today. And I'm guessing that if you're like me, at some point in recent months, you found yourself wondering each of those about Jesus. Today in our text, we'll see that Jesus is, in fact, these things and more for us. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 17. Today we'll be in Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14. And the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 823. Page 823, I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible just so you can see the text in front of you. You can follow along as I read it. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. Uh, We're in chapter 17. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. We'll start in verse 24. We'll work our way through. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. At the back of the room today, there's some Bibles back there. You stop by following the service and grab one of those. We also have some, some journals we've used throughout the series of Matthew. And so if you're newer to Hope, we'd love for you to take one of those in the journal. On the left-hand side are the text. On the right-hand side, some space for you to take notes as well. So we're resuming our series in the Gospel of Matthew after a break uh, for Advent. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, 
they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. When he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the, fist, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This morning in our passage, we see this emphasis for us. Exercise your faith in your powerful, merciful, and wise king. Exercise your faith in your powerful, merciful, and wise king. We'll see three scenes in the text. First, we'll see faith is needed. Second, we'll see that death is predicted. And third, wisdom is demonstrated. So first, we see that faith is needed in verses 14 through 21. We paused our series for Advent, and just before we pause, we were in this same chapter, chapter 17, in this um, key moment in Jesus' life and ministry called the Transfiguration, where Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, had ascended this mountaintop, and there on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured, meaning that, that in, a, in a moment, some more of his true glory was allowed to shine through. While up there, the two of the great saints of the past, Moses and Elijah, had appeared, and then God the Father had spoken of Jesus, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And after that experience, Jesus and his three disciples came down the mountain, and when they come down to the bottom, that's where our text picks up today, and they meet a crowd. And we see in our text in verse 15 that a man came up to Jesus and he says, verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures, he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So this man, this father is clearly distraught and desperate. We can only imagine the pain, the difficulty of this son, of these parents, of this family. And imagine the heart of this dad, so desperately wanting to find some relief, some help for their son. Longing for some healing for him. 
The dad goes on to explain why he was bringing him now to Jesus. Look at verse 16. He says, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. So apparently, while Peter, James, John, and Jesus are up on the mountain, this man had brought his son to the other disciples who had remained. And for some reason, they were unable to heal the son. We see Jesus' response in verse 17. Jesus says, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus is using this moment to teach the crowd that day, to teach his disciples that are there, as well as to speak to the whole generation. The one person he's really not speaking to here is actually this man, the father, for, for he's the only one who had a measure of faith. The words of Jesus here echo the words of Deuteronomy 32, speaking of how God's people who were living then and really God's people in every generation are so tempted to rebellion and failing or refusing to trust in God. So then after speaking to the crowds, to his disciples, Jesus returns to the man and tells him to bring his son to him. And we see in verse 18, Jesus rebukes the demon. It comes out, and the boy was healed instantly. So now we see the cause of the boy's condition was the influence of a demon. And at a word, the, the demon has to leave, and the boy was healed, restored instantly. The dad and his son, the family, experiences this life-changing mercy of Jesus that day. And then at some point, it seems likely right after this, in private, Jesus' disciples ask him, why couldn't we cast it out? They had tried to cast it out, so, so why couldn't they? And Jesus explains, verse 20, because of your little faith. Now, a brief side note, depending on your translation, you, you likely don't have a verse 21 if you look closely. You wouldn't have just noticed that when I was reading, but, but it likely jumps from verse 20 to verse 22, and you likely have a footnote that if you look at the bottom of the page, says something like this. Some manuscripts insert verse 21, which says, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Occasionally when you read the Bible, you'll see situations like this, and you'll see footnotes like this. Now you may initially this morning think, whoa. I mean, what is going on here? Maybe we can't trust the Bible after all if there's something like this happening. Well, friends, I would say to you that footnotes like this actually can help to reinforce our confidence in the Bibles that we have. The fact is we have thousands of New Testament manuscripts. Scholars who are able to do careful study of comparison. And occasionally they'll find that there are some manuscripts that have something the others don't. And so some of the manuscripts have this added. Now, if you went to the, the account of this in the Gospel of Mark, within the manuscript, we see these same words. And they're clearly in all the manuscripts. So what likely happened is that there was a scribe who was copying these. And in order to help clarify that, he brought in these words from Mark and includes them there, even though they're not in all the manuscripts. So that's why the scholars have pulled that out place it as a footnote, just mentioning that. 
Now, friends, that may be completely of no interest to you. It may raise concerns to you. But if you're interested, if you have questions, I'd be happy to talk with you more about that. But I would just simply say, as Christians, with, with our uh, scriptures, we have great confidence because of the, the numbers of manuscripts that we have and the work that is done by scholars. But I didn't want you to later this week notice the footnote and think, what is going on here? Now, with this boy, we, we see again the influence of spiritual forces in the world, the influence of this demon. And if you've been with us in Matthew, we've seen it again and again and again across this gospel account. And I hope this helps us to be mindful that there's often much more going on in the world than what meets the eye. There's much evil happening as a result of these spiritual forces. Satan and these forces with him want to destroy people, to cause harm, to undermine the work of Christ. Now the frequency of these encounters does seem to be greater in the gospel accounts. And and one of the reasons I think that is so is because they know, these spiritual forces know that Jesus is the king. They actually understand his true identity, so it makes sense that Satan and his forces would sort of rally as best they can to to try to uh, uh, undercut Jesus' ministry and overcome him at this time. And I realize in modern, skeptical Boston, it's easy to be cynical about these spiritual forces. But I'd encourage us to, to watch and to trust Jesus when he says that they're real And we want to pray as he guides us that he would protect us from the evil one. So in response to the disciples' question of why they couldn't cast it out, Jesus gives this interesting response. He says, because of your little faith. Now by this, Jesus is not primarily pointing to the size of faith, not primarily to the magnitude of their faith, because in the next sentence, he actually encourages them to have small faith like a mustard seed. But Jesus is pointing to the poor quality, or you might say the poor health of their faith. Jesus had previously given his disciples authority in Matthew 10 to do things like cast out demons. And they evidently had been doing this for some time and had been successful in doing what Jesus had given them authority to do. Now, it was Jesus' authority delegated to them. They weren't able to do it because of who they were, but because of Jesus' authority, they had success doing this. And it seems that in time, they began to think that they had reason to be confident in themselves instead of in Jesus. They increasingly became more and more self-reliant because of their success in ministry, trusting in their own power and their own strength. Friends, this is a subtle and very real danger when believers do make some progress in faith, or even when we experience some fruitfulness in ministry, to begin to think that we can trust our own strength, to rely on ourselves instead of relying on God. The disciples had become overconfident. So we see that Jesus corrects them for the way their faith was functioning in their lives. And then Jesus gives this tremendous promise to them and to us. Look at verse 20. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move over from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
So what does Jesus say is needed? Faith in him like a mustard seed. Now mustard seed was proverbial in that day for smallness. So Jesus is saying all that's needed is a small amount of faith in him. But Jesus had just said their problem was their little faith. And now he tells them all they need is a little faith. So which is it? Well, their little faith was evidently a receding and unhealthy faith. Trusting in themselves instead of trusting in him. And Jesus is saying something like, don't be faithless. Just have a little faith. Don't be faithless, just have a little bit of faith in me. He's telling his disciples then, and we who are disciples now, you don't have to have massive faith. It is not necessary to have great faith. Small faith is enough as long as it is faith that is rightly directed to our great Savior, to our great God. Power is found not in our faith, but in the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, with just a little faith, you can say to this mountain, move over here, it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Now, the idea of saying, move from here to there to a mountain, was also a proverbial statement in that day of the Jewish people for accomplishing something great. So the hearers in that day, when they heard Jesus say that, they would not have understood him to be saying that you could literally say to this mountain, move from here to there. But he is describing something great, something substantial. And then he summarized the stunning promise, for nothing is impossible. For those with tiny, even mustard seed faith, who ask Jesus in prayer for mercy, nothing is impossible. One author commenting on these verses says this, Jesus sets no limit to what can be done by the person of faith. It is possible to misunderstand the will of God and try to move a mountain that should not be moved. In that case, the believer will be disappointed. Jesus is not dealing with such cases here. He's not trying to cover every eventuality. He is saying that there are infinite resources open to the believer and he's calling on those who follow him to exercise the faith that they have. Now this promise that nothing is impossible can easily be misunderstood and misapplied. So that some would promise from it that in this life, if you have enough faith, you will have health and wealth and success. And there are quite common dominant teachings in the world. So if you just believe enough, you'll have it. And implied in that is if you don't have it, it's that you don't believe enough. And just let me say that that's foreign to the scriptures. It's devastating, crushing. It is untrue. But perhaps more often the abuse that we're likely to face today in our church is this of not asking at all. Sometimes for fear of asking too much, I wonder, do we ask enough in prayer of our God? It's worth asking yourself, are are you praying for anything in your life that only God can accomplish? That only God can do. You can't do it. Others can't do it. Only he can do it. 
So the surprising part of Jesus' teaching here is that it's not go develop great faith. That's not what he's saying. It's not just have great faith. Instead, it is just exercise the little, even tiny, flickering faith that you have. So what does this look like for us today? We pray to our Father in heaven in the name of Jesus, asking him to act in various ways in our our lives, the lives of others and in the world. And so we pray in faith with however much or however little faith that we have. So friend, let me encourage you, don't wait to pray thinking you don't have enough faith. And friend, if your faith is flickering today, just barely alive, that's still sufficient faith to ask, to pray. A true maturing faith is a praying faith. And as we do this and as we pray and as we do see Jesus answer some of our prayers in time, our faith does grow. And what are we typically asking for in our prayers? We're asking for, like the Father in the text, mercy. In countless ways, we're asking for God to give us mercy. We're not asking for, we don't ask for what we deserve, but instead we say, God, would you give us mercy? And the good news is the one that we pray to gives mercy freely. And not only gives mercy freely, but his very nature is to be merciful. In the book of Exodus, Moses asked God to reveal more of what he's like. And here's what we see in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Friends, that is what our God is like. That's what your God is like, gracious and merciful. Friends, God gives mercy so often in response to our prayers. In the ways that we ask, he often gives mercy. At other times, he gives not in exactly the way that we've asked, but in a slightly different way, he gives to us mercy. And sometimes, it's a mystery, but our prayers that are prayed in faith are not answered in this life. This is a mystery. It's often a source of great pain, disappointment. That I'm guessing if you've been a Christian for very long at all, you have felt this, you have faced this. We could all mention all those different scenarios, you've prayed and God has answered, asking, giving what you asked for. You've prayed and God didn't give you exactly what you asked for, but still gave you a wonderful gift of mercy or times of unanswered prayers. I had planned to be here last week and preach this text, but my uncle, who was 80 and had been in generally good health, uh, lived a full life about a month ago, all of a sudden became sick. Within a few days, they found out he had cancer. Within a few more days, the cancer was determined to be terminal. And in less than a month, he went from healthy to have died. 
when we got the news initially, we prayed. We're grateful for his full life. We were praying, God, would you grant him more days? Would you extend his life? And so we, we prayed, our family prayed and hoped. And the fact is, though, that prayer, as we prayed it, was not answered. Now, thankfully, he knew Christ, so, so he received mercy, much more mercy than even we were asking for him. But it's still painful for those of us left, still left with questions and disappointment. And friend, I'm certain you have felt that as well. Friends, even with the mystery and disappointment that we face at times like this, if we're able to lift up our eyes and look back across our lives and across the generations, we can see the overwhelming gifts of mercy from our God. And friends, we talk about praying this morning. Maybe if you're wondering what this praying looks like, or maybe as you thought about the new year, you thought, I'd like to pray more in the new year. I invite you to join us tonight. During the month of January, we're doing some special courses. And so tonight from 5 to 6, we'll gather here on the topic of prayer. And so I'll be teaching. I would love for you to join us tonight at 5 for that. So we see that faith is needed. And then the scene shifts. The last two scenes are much shorter. The scene shifts. And we see, second, death is predicted. Death is predicted in verses 22 and 23. And here Jesus tells the disciples what was going to happen to him. He's told them this before, and here he tells them just a little bit more, an additional detail. He says, I'm about to be delivered into the hands of men. So pointing to the betrayal that was also going to be a part of his story. So he tells them he's going to be betrayed, put to death, and raised on the third day. We see that in response, his disciples were again distressed at this news. Now, why does Jesus, if we read the gospel accounts, why does he repeatedly tell his disciples this? We see him do it a number of times. Well, the fact is Jesus wanted to prepare them for what was to come. And what was about to happen to Jesus was so very different from what they had hoped and thought it would look like when the Messiah came. His death would look like the ultimate failure of the mission. So he wanted to prepare them as best that he could for that. He also spoke of it often because this would be the very culmination of his life and mission. All that he had done and said would make sense only in the light of his cross and his resurrection. And when you read each of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what you see as it builds towards that. But the cross and the resurrection are at the very center. Jesus was willingly choosing to go to the cross. That he, the sinless, righteous son of God, would die on the cross in the place of sinners like us. That through his death and resurrection, he would provide mercy to any and all who would receive him. Now as Jesus healed the boy in our text today, he relieved their suffering, their pain, giving to them mercy. But Jesus chose not to protect himself from suffering, not to avoid pain, but embraced it that through his death, he would provide mercy for sinners. The salvation, the free gift of grace would be available to any and all who would see their need and turn to Christ by faith. The God of mercy would provide the ultimate gift, as Paul writes, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Friends, what a glorious, merciful Savior we have. And friend, if you're new to exploring Christianity, we want you to know this Savior. I want you to see that the very center of Christianity is not what we do, not our devotion, but a Savior out of his great devotion who gave himself for us, that through that he would offer this free gift of salvation. For if this is new to you, we'd love for you to feel safe just to explore with us in the weeks to come. If you'd like to know more, even today, I'll be at the door following the service. Or if you came with a friend, a family member, a classmate, they would love to tell you more as well. Jesus' disciples needed to be told again and again that they might understand the cross and the resurrection when it happened. Now today, on this side of the cross, we need to be told again and again of the cross and resurrection so we understand its implications for us for today and for eternity. And friends, we want to see and understand that the life and the ministry of Jesus doesn't make sense without his cross and resurrection. And Jesus never gives the option of taking him without his cross and without his resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection were necessary because of our sinful state. So friends, be careful of a Jesus without a cross of a crossless Jesus that that can be so tempting because the cross of Jesus has always been and will always be scandalous. And it can be easy in a city like ours where, where so many would be opposed to the message of Jesus to begin to desire a crossless Jesus. And sadly, there are even some churches who preach a Jesus without his cross. But friends, we must be clear, Jesus doesn't give us that option. And we would have no hope, no grace in this life apart from it. There is no good news without the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So we see that death is predicted. And then the scene shifts one more time and we see third, wisdom is demonstrated. Wisdom is demonstrated in verses 24 to 27. They arrive in Capernaum. And some tax collectors come to Peter, also referred to here by Jesus as Simon. Now, these were not tax collectors for the Romans. That's normally what we encounter, the tax collectors that are doing work of the occupying Roman Empire. But this was a tax levied on all Jewish males between 20 and 50. So they were to pay this tax to provide for the the ministry of the temple um, and uh, all that happened there. And obviously you didn't just get to pay it by free will. Like they showed up coming to you, you know, tried to try to collect the tax. So they asked Peter, well, does your master, does he pay the tax? And Peter answers, well, of course he does. But then Peter comes to the house where Jesus is. And look at verse 25. Jesus says to Peter, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are So Jesus is saying that when there's a a true monarch, those who are the sons of the king don't have to pay taxes because they own it all anyway. So it's it's the citizens who are taxed, not those who are children of the king. And who is Jesus? God the Son. So would Jesus be bound by this 
attacks. Well, in the end, we see that really what Peter could have said was, no, he doesn't pay this tax. He doesn't need to pay this tax. But even after helping Peter to see this, we, we notice what Jesus says, verse 27. He says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that, give it to them for me and for yourself. So Jesus explains, I actually don't need to pay this tax, but I don't want to cause an offense. So Jesus is saying there, there's no need to cause an offense to stir things up on a relatively minor issue in light of some larger realities because Jesus was about to turn the world upside down. For because of Jesus, there would no longer need to be a temple that would even collect taxes anymore for Jesus was the true temple. There would no longer be a need to be a place to go and make sacrifices for Jesus was the final sacrifice. So Jesus is saying, in light of that bigger issue, it's fine for us to do this, to pay this tax in order not to cause an offense because there are other things that are going on. And then in order to provide the money for the tax, Jesus performs this unique and honestly strange miracle. He says to Peter, go catch a fish. The first fish you catch, pick it up, open its mouth, and there's a coin, and that's how you pay the taxes. Only miracle like it in the Bible. I mean, it's honestly puzzling. It's, it's kind of crazy. Now, I mentioned we're having a, a, a prayer study tonight at 5. We're also having a, a study at the same time on finances. How do we handle our money wisely? So I encourage you, you might want to come to that. And in a lot of our text today, we're going to teach you how that when tax time comes in April, <laughs> you're going to go to the Charles River together. We're going to cast it in. No, actually, we're not going to teach you that. But it is a helpful course that's tonight at 5 o'clock as well. No fish catching included. We see that Jesus here was perfectly wise, patient, strategic. My friends, as we follow Jesus in this world, we sometimes will have to wrestle with, to seek to be wise, and decide when we'll cause offense and when it's unwise to cause offense. Sometimes Christians, and I think it seems even more so American Christians, we can seem to look for reasons to cause offense. Cause offense for big things and small things. On the other side, though, Christians can resist ever being willing to cause an offense. And in both of those, we cause compromise. And so we're always mindful that the cross is offensive. We'll always be offensive, but we are not given the freedom to hold back the cross. We, we don't have the freedom to, to lessen or to change the scandalous message of the cross. And I mentioned at the outset this morning that as we think about asking others for assistance, we wonder, are they strong? Are they compassionate? Are they wise? And so we ask the same of Jesus. Is he strong? Is he powerful enough to help you? Does he care? Does he have compassion and mercy for you? Is he wise? Does he know what's best in this modern world?
And friends, I hope you see in our passage today that he is all of those. Jesus is powerful enough. He heals with only a word. He is full of mercy. He cares, and he cares for you. And he is perfect in his wisdom. So this is our Savior and our King Jesus, the powerful, merciful, wise King. And friend, he's the one who invites you, invites us today, with however little faith we have, to ask him that he might do the impossible. The one who died providing this extraordinary gift of mercy invites you today to ask in prayer. And so the question then for all of us today, friends, is what will we do? Let's go to him today with the faith that we have. However small, however flickering that faith may be, and ask him. The father in the text brought his son to Jesus for mercy. That's one way that we have the opportunity to pray. Thinking through who are the people in our lives who need the mercy of God. And we bring them to God in prayer saying, God, would you give mercy to my brother? Would you give mercy to my neighbor? Would you give mercy to my professor? Would you give mercy to my coworker? But who could you bring to God today asking that they receive mercy? And then in our own lives, we all have needs and challenges in our lives that, that would seem to be impossible, that you can't fix, that seemingly almost seem like they can't be fixed by anyone. Small and big challenges. Friend, will you go to your God for mercy today? Friend, maybe it's been a long time since you've prayed, since you've asked. Because in the past you did ask, but you didn't receive what you asked for. It's been a great source of pain, disappointment. But I, I feel that pain with you. And it is true, we won't know all the answers in this life. But I urge you to ask again for mercy from your Father. Ask today. And let's together as a church be a praying, asking church. But we never be self-reliant, which can be so tempting. Never thinking that because of the fruitfulness of the past, we can depend on ourselves for the present or the future instead of God. So friend, let's pray to our merciful Savior for he has done and can do the seemingly impossible. I have a helpful little book of some prayers of the Puritans. The book is called The Valley of Vision. And part of one of the prayers that I love says this. And we can join in praying this. Father, nothing exceeds thy power. Nothing is too great for thee to do. Nothing is too good for thee to give. Infinite is thy might, boundless thy love, limitless thy grace, glorious thy saving name. I ask great things of a great God. For that's what we can do today. Ask great things, ask big things of a great God.